invite you to take a Bible and turn in the New Testament to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6. Matthew, chapter 6. And as you're turning there, uh, I want to mention two things. One is uh, related to these, that flood bucket. If you look to my left, you'll see a bucket over there with a number of supplies. I asked one of our deacons if they would place one of those there because as you read in the announcement folder... Uh, ever since the hurricane in uh, the Carolinas, we have been uh, uh, mentioning flood buckets. And if you've gone into the brickyard area, you've seen something like this. And asking if you'd like to give toward this, you can give. That's $65, basically, all those supplies in the bucket. Or uh, y- you can collect those things yourselves and give those. We give through our denomination's disaster relief agency. And they distribute those, but that's, they, they're the experts in this area. So we look to them to tell us what is needed because they're on site. And uh, so if you'd like to give, that's what it goes for. You can read about it in the announcement. The second uh, thing is that the, for our members, at the close of this service, you've received letters in the mail and announcements that we're asking if you are prepared, and hopefully you are, to make a pledge for next year, your, your commitment to the church. We have boxes up here, one in front of me and one on the, two on either side, that during the closing hymn, I'll give you the opportunity to come and, and to place those in there. Okay, Matthew chapter 6. This is from the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount is the longest sermon that we have that Jesus preached that we have recorded in the Gospels. It covers Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. And so I'd like to begin reading, though we'll look at verses 25 and following, I'll begin reading in verse 19. Hear God's word. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore, now based on everything he just said, he says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them, knows you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. 
Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. So ends the reading of God's holy word. When I was a senior in high school, I was exposed to a book that I still, that I was reading this week, and it's it's a compilation of sermons by Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who preached in the United Kingdom back during the uh, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s. He was trained to be a surgeon, and yet God called him to be be a minister. And he compiled a series of sermons he did on the Sermon on the Mount, and it's in a book about that thick called Studies in the Sermon on the Mount. And the book itself, like the sermon, covers a variety of subjects. Jesus is talking about in this sermon what a true follower of Christ, what a true lover of God looks like. And he's going through these various characteristics. And halfway through the sermon, to, at this place where we began reading, he says something so unnatural and so outrageous that he kind of flips reality upside down. And it's when he makes the statement, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. Now just try to think what it would be like that to hear it for the first time. We know that's church language now. But to hear Jesus that day as he gave this sermon on this hillside to a multitude of people, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, your question would have been, well, where else can you store them? If not here... And now, then where and when? When Jesus talks about treasures, he's not only talking about money. Treasures is a broad term. He's warning against confining your interest and your affections and your ambition and your hopes to this life only. And he warns us not to do so, not to store up treasures on earth, because they are temporary regardless of what they are. They, they will not last. And the positive side of that, in verse 20, he says, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Now, upon that foundation, and I don't plan to preach on that, we move into a section that deals with worry and anxiety. And it's amazing how much time Jesus spends on this. And I believe it follows in this order because If you and I here do not store for yourselves treasures on earth, but store for yourselves treasures in heaven, the immediate response is, wait a minute, if I do that, how am I going to take care of myself? Who's going to take care of me? And there's a fear factor involved with it. There's an insecurity that comes over us when we we think like that. And so I believe he follows that section with this longer passage on worry. Now let me say, and I typically don't say this before a sermon, and that is, uh, I remember years ago leaving a church service where during the sermon at this church in another state, the pastor had made some passing reference to drunkenness. And the man I was with struggled with alcoholism. And when we got to the parking lot, he was very angry. And he said, how can he stand up and make those kind of comments? How could he say that? He doesn't know what it's like to wake up first thing in the morning and have your hands shaking before you have a drink. 
Who is he to make a comment like that? Well, I didn't say anything. But I did think, if every preacher has to experience every kind of sin there is before we can preach on it, we probably wouldn't be in very good shape to preach. But when it comes to worry and anxiety, you're in the room with an expert. (laughs) I I can hang with the best of you in this area. And so when I realized this was a passage I planned to deal with, about a week ago, I, I kind of got a sick feeling like this is, this is just hypocrisy. Chip, how can, what's the irony of you speaking about a subject like this of which you struggle as much as with anything in life? And so I went back and I read Martin Lloyd-Jones's book on this, and I'm not using any of really his material today. I'm approaching it from a different angle, but I needed to hear it, and hopefully it will be as beneficial to you as it's been to me. Okay, the subject is, he says, do not be anxious, depending on your translation. It may use a synonym, which is do not worry. It's repeated some six times. Verse 25, 27, 28, 31, 34. It's just giving reasons and reasons and reasons for us not to be anxious in this life. Now, our word worry comes from a German term which meant to strangle or to choke. You think, Ooh, that's a strange term. Worry from strangle or choke. Well, when we worry about something, when we become overly anxious, it's a kind of mental and emotional strangulation. You just kind of feel, and sometimes we say, I have, I've, I've got to get outside. I, I mean, I, I'm so anxious. I've got to walk around. I've got to get some fresh air. Worry or anxiety, someone has said, is borrowing tomorrow's problems and bringing them into today. Well, how inclusive is this command not to worry? In verse 25, he says, don't worry about your life. That's everything. Your physical well-being, your mental well-being, your emotional well-being, your spiritual well-being, all of these things. He's saying nothing in your life justifies being anxious about it, being worried about it. And he bases that in verse 25 when he says, therefore, pointing back to the thing about laying up treasure in heaven. And, and not being a slave either to God or to mammon. No one can serve two masters. And he says that because it's a matter of impossibility. He doesn't say you shouldn't serve two masters. He says you cannot serve two masters. So let me give you four reasons that I think are from this passage as why we should not be anxious or worry. And the first reason is because God is your master. And if God is your master, then he's responsible for you as his servant. How does God become our master? Well, we call it around here the bad news, good news. It's the gospel. He becomes our master when we realize that there is a God, that he created our ancient foreparents, Adam and Eve, and they were alive to God not only physically but spiritually. They had not only the senses we have, They had another sense, a sixth sense, a spiritual sense, where they literally walked and talked with him. But something happened, and what happened was they they violated a prohibition he gave to them. They sinned against God. They committed a crime against God, and as a result of that, God had warned them that if you do that, you will die. Well, they didn't die physically then. They lived a long time afterwards, but they died spiritually. That spiritual sense was now gone. And, and God was punishing them with that because of their disobedience. 
But at the same time, in the midst of the punishment, in Genesis chapter 3, he promises that he's going to send one, a redeemer, who would make things right one day. Now, you and I are born into the world where Adam and Eve ended up. We are born, the Bible says, spiritually dead. We may be very much physically alive, but spiritually we don't have that connection with God like they originally had. And so that's the bad news. God must punish our sin. If I were to stop now, there's no hope for any of us. But thankfully, God is loving and merciful, and in his love and mercy, he sent that Redeemer. He sent Jesus Christ as a substitute to take the punishment that we deserve for our sin. He never sinned. He loved God with his heart, soul, mind, and strength. He said, I always do those things that are pleasing to my Father. Then he allowed himself to be arrested and beaten and crucified and nailed to a Roman cross, all as a substitute for others. And when he was on that cross, God put my sins on him and punished him in my place. He took the punishment that my sin deserved. And he made a full payment. He died on the cross. That was the greatest demonstration of God's love and mercy. His body was taken down from the cross. It was laid in the borrowed tomb. Three days later, he rose physically, bodily from the grave. Over a period of 40 days, he appeared to several hundred people. And before he ascended to heaven, where he is now, he told his followers to go into all the world and to tell people of what he had done and how to receive the gift of eternal life. And that is to believe that Jesus is God, the Son of God, perfect, and that he died for us, that we cannot do anything to make ourselves right with God, but Jesus does it, and we trust in that. We turn to him, we serve him. God becomes our master. Now, who's responsible for the servants? The master is. So the first, you might say, step toward dealing with anxiety and worry is to realize I have a master, and he is responsible for me to take care of me. The second reason not to be filled with anxiety is found in verses 26 through 30. I'll not take the time to reread it, but he gives these little examples metaphor. The birds, he gives the birds there, not metaphors, I'm sorry, analogies. He uses birds as an object lesson. Birds don't have a con sparrows and, and others. They don't have a complicated process for finding food. It says they do not sow. They don't go out and till the ground and then sow seed there. They don't reap. They don't gather into barns. I doubt if you've ever been driving through South Georgia and looked beside the highway and said, look at that little barn over there that the birds built. They're say, storing up for, for winter. They're storing up their, their seeds and so forth. Uh, no, and yet even these small creatures, relatively insignificant, God cares for them, and he supplies for them. It says, your heavenly Father feeds them. Jesus is nowhere here suggesting that the birds are passive, that they don't work, that they do nothing. They are diligent. They are persistent in searching for food, but there's no indication that they worry that they're anxious about where the next meal is coming from. And his point, his point that those people on that hill would have understood and we should understand, if God so carefully takes care of these relatively small and insignificant beings, part of his creation, will he not take much more care of you who have been created in his own image? Then he mentions longevity in verse 27. How can you lengthen your life by being anxious? 
He's not condemning taking care of our bodies, nutrition and rest and exercise and so forth, but by worrying, we cannot add to our life. In fact, we'll probably take away from it, the length of it. And then he mentions clothing in verses 28 to 30. That would have been a more important item to them than it is to us right now. And he uses flowers as a model. He says, the lilies of the field, look at those. And they included all the wildflowers. And they covered the hillsides of Galilee with bright color and great variety. And he's, he's speaking to people who maybe had one or two sets of clothing. That's why it would have been more important to them than us. But he, he says, look, look how God so arrays the, the lilies of the field, their, their colors, their shapes. You know, I almost never, until the first service, turned around and I looked at the flowers. And I always hear people after the service say, boy, weren't those flowers beautiful? And often I'll look up here because when I'm sitting here preaching, I don't turn around and see them. So I often see them for the first time tomorrow at the Macon Rotary Club because these are moved into the fellowship hall after this service. And in the Macon Rotary Club, they call attention to them and they say who they memorialize and so forth. Then Kenny and Katie Ron come from Houston Lake Presbyterian Church, get them, and they'll. if you go to Houston Lake next Sunday, you'll see these. They won't look quite as nice, but those flowers will be there. So that's, they were put together yesterday, and I'm so grateful for the people in the church that are adept at these things and sacrifice their time and talents to present such beautiful things here. And here's how we should use them. Look at that and think about what Jesus is saying in the Sermon on the Mount. They reflect the creativity and the beauty of God, and they're also very, very temporary. Because after next Sunday when they appear at Houston Lake, guess what happens? They're thrown away. Something so beautiful, something so creative that you and I can't, can't make it. And yet God does, and Jesus is saying, if your father does all these colors and variety, if God does this, and they would have had flowers they could see, wildflowers there on the hill. If he does that, and they're fit for nothing more to be taken and to heat up an oven with them, which they would have used them for when they were dried, will he not do much more for you as far as clothing you? So once the flower's beauty was gone, it was, was not useful. Now, is Jesus condemning planning and forethought? No. Not by the birds, not about longevity, not about beauty. What he forbids is not forethought, but anxious thought. J.C. Ryle, Bishop J.C. Ryle expressed it this way, prudent provision for the future is right, but self-torming tormenting anxiety is wrong. So yes, we plan, we think. Those of us, many of us that worry, we're planners. Aren't we? If you're strategic, if you are a planner and you kind of like to know, hey, what are we doing 12 months from now? You know, or two years from now? You're probably a person that struggles with anxiety. I said of a friend of mine, you know, one of his great strengths is he doesn't worry. And then in the next sentence I said, but also one of his great weaknesses is he doesn't worry. So it's great not to worry, especially when we need to plan and be strategic and to think through the details of something. 
The third reason he gives us is because we're not to worry because of our faith. In verses 31 and 32, he says even the, the Gentiles, the, the unbelievers, uh, it's natural for them to worry. I mean, if you say there is no God, there, there's no prayers to be had. Not, they won't be listened to by anyone anyway. I've got to float my own boat. I've got to make it happen. I've got, if there's going to be any success, I've got to do it with my own two hands, and I can't depend on any unseen power to do anything for me. And he says that's natural thinking for an unbeliever, for a pagan. But for a Christian to think I've got a heavenly father who loves me, he said you're thinking like an unbeliever, and your anxiety reflects it. So where is your faith? That's what Jesus is asking. It's really an issue of living by faith. Note that he does not say believers are exempt from earning a living and using means to make things happen. Remember the name Hudson Taylor? Many of you have read his various the number of biographies that written about Hudson Taylor. In the mid-1800s, he became one of the first European missionaries into China, and he founded the China Inland, missionaries, uh, China Inland Mission, later became OMF. But in 1853, when he was making his first voyage to China, the ship was caught in a violent storm off the UK, and he thought it would be dishonoring to God if he wore a life jacket. So he gave his life jacket away. Later, he rethought that and said that was wrong, that he was not thinking right. He saw his mistake, and he wrote this, The use of means ought not to lessen our faith in God, and our faith in God ought not to hinder our using whatever means he has given us for the accomplishment of his own purposes. So he saw that God will take care of me, but he'll probably do it with a life jacket on <laughs> rather than giving my life jacket away and, and thinking that that's a lack of faith to have that. So God will take care of us. Believers also are not exempt from experiencing trouble. To be free from worry in no way means to be free from trouble. Think about it. God grows the grass of the field that he referred to earlier, but the grass is still cut down and burned. God protects even the sparrows and the smallest birds, but they still fall to the ground and die. So his promise was not to these people and to us that we will not fall, that we will not suffer harm, but that we will not fall and suffer apart from his knowledge and concern. So our freedom from anxiety is not due to some guaranteed freedom from trouble. Give me a trouble-free life and then I won't worry. No. The whole thing he's saying here is don't be anxious because it does nothing good. And it's damaging to you and it's toxic to your faith. He's really, he's really just trying to help us and giving us the reasons why we shouldn't be Anxious. Fourth reason. I only have four, and this is the last one. You're not to, this is verses 33 and 34. You're not to worry because God will meet your needs as you seek first his kingdom. 
To seek first means to seek it earnestly, to give it priority, to be intense about it, to give it importance in your life. He's repeating the need for this priority in life. He's saying, rather than seeking and worrying about food, clothing, so forth, like unbelievers do, focus your attention on the hopes, on the things of the Lord, and he will take care of all your needs as you serve him. So we put it first, and we start with our own lives, the way we use our time, the way we think, our home, if you're married, your marriage, family, personal morality, how you approach work, how you relate to people, how you relate to material things, your lifestyle, every, every imaginable area joyfully submitted to Christ. And then we reach out, the church does, as a mission to the nations. And God gives a promise that all these things will be added to us. What things? The things we're prone to worry about. God is saying, while we concentrate on the work of his kingdom and his righteousness, he will see that we have food and clothing. Okay, let me give you a couple of practical observations, and these are from me. And that first is from verse 34. As you read this, it seems like it should end at verse 33 with... But seek first his kingdom of God and his righteousness. All these things will be added to you. That seems like it ought to be the end of the story. But he adds one more verse. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. He, he talks about being worried about the next day. I grew up reading the New American Standard, so I think in those terms. And it says each day has enough trouble of its own rather than tomorrow be anxious for itself. Imagine some containers up here. This would be a container for Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday, Thursday and Friday. And there's some troubles coming up tomorrow. They're, just, they're going to happen. Now, I don't know what they are yet. Some, I'm, I may know, uh, I may be very confident they're going to happen. Others are just going to occur during the day, and I can't do anything about it, but they will happen. And imagine this cup is about that full with trouble. What he's saying is there's a quota, to use the term for Martin Lloyd-Jones. There's a quota of trouble each day. And our tendency, for some of us, is to take Tuesday's trouble. Today, and on Monday, we want to pour that one in there. Then we take Wednesday's, and we pour that in there. Then we take Thursday's, and we pour. And on Monday, the whole thing's running over with troubles, most of which haven't even occurred yet. And it's miserable. It's absolutely miserable. Now let me add one more thing that may be true of some people in this room. There's a big container back here called the past. Remorse, regret, reliving things, and you take that container and you pour it in right here. And then here's one over here, 10 years out. What's going to happen five years from now? What's going to happen 10 years from now? What's going to happen 20 years from now? And we bring that one in and pour it. Our, our son, Stephen, our disabled son, is 21. This is his last year in the public school system, and the future is very unclear. Here's the weird thing about having, uh, I'm speaking to you as my friends and brothers and sisters in Christ. One of the weirdest things about having a child like Stephen who's severely disabled, for those that don't know, he can't talk, can't care for himself, but he can walk, which makes him an enigma in the whole system as far as finding a place for daycare and even overnight care. The emotions of having a child like that are upside down. First of all, we fear that he'll die. 
Secondly, we fear he'll live. Third, and this is just opposite of your, your other children, we fear he'll outlive us. And that's the, most, that's the most terrifying part of all. So since year one or two, when things became clear, people have said to my wife and me, what are y'all going to do? What are you going to do when he gets bigger than you are? What are you going to do? And now, now we're being asked regularly by well-meaning, loving people, what are you going to do when school's over? And we do some research. I spent about an hour with a guy I'd never met before. Last week, he and his wife put their 14-year-old in an institution. He's been there eight years. Once he got too big, for, and he can't even roll over. So they couldn't pick him up, care for him, change diapers. They couldn't physically keep doing it. And so Stephen's daddy, who gave his testimony, Stephen's father, Big Steve, used to be the head of the Methodist home. And years ago I asked Steve, I said, Steve, where is a place that could care for Stephen, our son Stephen, given what he can and cannot do? If you can't change your own clothes, go to the restroom, that changes everything. And he got on a conference call with a number of Methodist home leaders around the country. And he said, Chip, I found one place in Ohio. All right, here's what I'm trying to say. We delve into this and we'll do some research like Barbara did the other day and I did the week before. And we begin talking and then that cup begins to overflow. And we say, that's all we can handle right now. We'll have to think about this later. I mean, if we keep bringing the future in, what's going to happen next year, next year? It just, I, th- I see why Jesus said do that. So if you're sitting here today and you're, you're a planner, you're strategic, you like to know what's in the future, like most of us do, and you're obsessed with it and you're worried about it, repent for your own good. And that's what Jesus is saying. He's not saying it's trouble-free, but you can't do anything about Tuesday on Monday. So don't think about it, or don't worry about it. Don't be anxious about it. Plan, so forth, you get the idea. Second, second thing, pray about the things that worry you. Use a journal, write them on paper. Pray about your tendency to worry about things. Third, memorize scripture, like Matthew 6.33. See, that's a good verse to start with. I like Psalm 37.25, where David said, I was young and now I am old. Yet I have never seen the righteous forsaken or their children begging bread. And fourth, my fourth observation and final is, how does God do this? How does God provide the food and the clothing? How is he going to provide for them and us? Typically, through other people. It doesn't drop down out of heaven. Well, it has in history, but it's probably not going to happen for you and me. So he, he provides, and he does it through other people. Now, I want to tell you right now, give you one encouraging thing that's happening now, right now. Earlier in the service, when Chris led us in our congregational prayer, he prayed for Chuck Duggan. Chuck is on our staff, well-known probably to most of us in this room. Chuck and Ellen love African Bible College. Chuck would live there if he had the opportunity to live there. But he... I don't know how many trips he's made to African Bible College, including where he is right now. He left a week ago 
to go to Malawi and to teach in the African Business Institute, which is, which is part of African Bible College. I read an email from him yesterday. He's had about 30 students. They're representing sometimes in pairs, sometimes five or six, and they're going to start businesses in, in their area of Africa. And Chuck's doing, along with some others, some of the training with his business background of some of these people. But the second reason he went over there, not only was to teach, but he went to deliver shoes. So for a couple of months, I've been hearing Chuck say, I'm hauling all these shoes over there. I'm taking 100 pairs of shoes. Well, a week ago, we were at their house for a birthday party for Chuck, and I was talking to him. I said, Chuck, 100 pairs of shoes? How is that cost efficient to haul those over from America? Can't you just send the money and buy shoes in Africa? Why are you taking shoes over there? He said, I had the impression people here were donating you shoes. That's how out of touch I am, folks, and I'm the pastor. Your pastor has issues, and that's just one of them. He said, you don't understand. He said, they aren't any type of shoes. They are special shoes. Well, two of our Sunday school classes heard about this this thing called the shoe that grows. That's the name of it. You can Google it, the shoe that grows. Don't do it now, please. Don't do it. I, uh, the shoe that grows. A, a, a young man, it looked like from the picture I, I read on their website, was in a third world country, and he, he noticed how many of the kids didn't have shoes, and not having shoes, you may know, those that are medical, the second leading cause of disease and even death in many of these countries are diseases that are contracted through the feet of these kids that don't have shoes to wear. So he came back to America, to Indiana, I believe is where he's from, and he started thinking, we need to come up with some kind of shoe that could be used. And it took five years to develop this, and this is what they came up with. This is called the shoe, the shoe that grows. It's got a little heart on it. And this shoe, there's three of them. This is the medium size. And the way it grows is it's got these high-quality, real high-quality snaps. So the shoes can get longer and they can get wider because of the Velcro. They, they're really well-made. They look better than Tebas, I mean, as far as the quality. So it's got a Goodyear sole on it. And this, so this is the medium size. And a child can get one of these shoes and unless something bad happens, they potentially can wear these for three or four years as they grow. They cost $15 each. And by, we bought, these two Sunday school classes bought 300 pairs of these. So Chuck was taking 100, and then 200 are being shipped through African Bible College and will be distributed by African Bible College. So he wrote Friday, and this is what he said of, that happened. No, he wrote yesterday of something that happened Friday. I can't pronounce the village. He said the highlight of the week was Friday when we went to the village of something. He said, Frederick and his son took me out there with 40 pair of the shoes that grow. He had arranged for the elders of the church to get the young children who needed shoes to come. I could have given out 200 pair if I had had them. But Frederick wanted to take some of the shoes to Zamba next week where the need is greater. Second leading cause of childhood diseases come from worms that get into the feet of children. Shoes are needed much. The faces of the children were so amazing. They were thrilled to get new shoes. They had never had them. The shoes were easy to fit, and we did 40 children in about 30 minutes between the three of us. Well, 
I just wanted to say, how, how is that happening? That's a, that's a church effort. It's, it's somebody hearing about this shoe that Sunday school classes hear about, and many of you probably are in those classes, and said, we want to help. They gave the money, and now Chuck take, taking that over there, and they're sending. So as we give, as I asked our members to turn in their commitment cards, think beyond lights and printing and building maintenance. It, it's, it's to see changed lives so that others, as well as us, will seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Let's pray together. Father, you are invisible, and yet you are all-powerful and all-knowing, and we've never seen you. We've seen you in the person of Jesus Christ that we read about, that we have detailed accounts about in the scriptures, and yet we live in a material world, and that material world we can touch and hear and feel and it's very, very unnatural for us to think about laying up treasure in heaven when we can't even see it. And so we pray that by your Holy Spirit, and it can only be by your Holy Spirit, you would prioritize our hearts to love you first and foremost, to seek first your kingdom individually and as a church. Thank you that you've given us the ability to give and to be sacrificial. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.